from 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Mariah Humiston, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, how Syracuse is the first stable basketball team one player has had in years, and snap, and then it's gone, how Trump's proposed food cuts are set to impact Syracuse. It's Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. So, basically, she ends up in Daytona Beach, Florida, for a graduate year after high school with a program called DME. It's a high school and prep team that a lot of basketball players would go to to try and earn that college scholarship. But the thing with Talia was that she already had one. She was already committed to Syracuse. But the minutes weren't going to be there. The guard depth with Syracuse was, was deep. So, her father, James took a job with DME as a girls prep coach, and they moved down to Daytona Beach. But in the middle of the year, the team folded. Combination of economical reasons, rising tensions between the two sides, and they split. But the thing is that the girls needed somewhere to stay, and James's apartment was kind of the only option. So Talia, along with these seven other girls, move into the apartment with James, and it's a two-closet, one-bathroom apartment. And air mattresses start filling up the two upstairs rooms. James is in his own room on the downstairs. And it's kind of just the, the, the culmination of this effect where all these girls are down in Daytona Beach looking for that opportunity. And now, you know, when he pulls them into the living room and says, our program's been cut, that's the downfall of this all. Eventually, they'll continue playing. James will make his own prep team. But this moment in the apartment when he tells him, their program's been cut. That was the obstacle in this whole thing. I'm Andrew Cran. That is just one of the many struggles that Washington went through on her journey to eventually play for the Syracuse women's basketball team. So how did Talia begin being interested in basketball? So James, her father, played basketball at Forestville, never was able to play the level he wanted to in college just because of family commitments. But he still played in these semi-professional leagues throughout the, the D.C. area. He would take Talia to these games. Talia had older siblings that James would coach. And, and really, she just ended up being the, the little child at the practices dribbling the ball in the corner. She <laughs> she tried to you know dribble the ball in between her legs, but didn't realize that she had to like create distance between her legs and, and dribble the ball between those. So one of the boys came up to her at one of the practices, and he's like, try lifting your leg. And she's little Talia, who's like four or five, six years old at the time, like lifts her leg up and sticks the, the, the boy-sized ball underneath. And that was her first dribble move. And so from there, she kind of she kind of built off of that. But they all centered around this Baloo High School where James was coaching these practices where she would kind of shadow and become immersed in, in a boys basketball game. Can you tell me about some of the other obstacles that she struggled with? So before the, the whole prep team scenario, she was part of a, a high school called Forestville Military Academy, where her father James went, her mother went, and even Syracuse head coach Quentin Hillsman went. It was a former military academy that became a public school because of enrollment issues. And the, the two years Talia was there were the, the final two years it was open to the public. I mean, it closed after her sophomore year, and Talia and her the basketball team won state championships the final two years, the first two girls state championships in the school's history. And so there was there was that. That was the first one. Obstacle two is when they go to Rock Creek Christian Academy, which is a very small private school where she was with kindergartners and she was an 11th grader, very close-knit community. But that school, like I said, it's small. They don't Their facilities aren't 
I guess as modern as as maybe public schools would be with the funding they get. So going back to when Forestville closed, in the article, it says that families were devastated, the community was devastated, and Washington herself was devastated. What did she do about it? The action she took was that there was a hearing that she attended, and she was selected to speak on behalf of the girls' basketball team, the National Honor Society. And she talked about the fact that this program means so much to her because of her family ties, but it also means so much to, to every other girl on that basketball team, every other girl in that school. So that was that was what she did. And then eventually, you know, just looking back on it, those two years there mean so much to her because of, of the community that she formed there. It's a very close-knit community, even though it's not the drill school it once was. It's no longer a military school like it was when James went there and when Quentin Hillsman went there. But the community was still there. Her mother actually worked there. She worked in the office as an administrative assistant. And so there was all these ties made made this closing so much more significant. After that closing, she went to Rock Creek. And in the article, it says this gym was incredibly outdated. So can you kind of walk us through that and then what her and her teammates had to do to compensate for that? So the gym was not the same gym that they had at Forestville. It wasn't the same gym that she grew up playing with, her local town of uh, a District Heights, Maryland. It, this is this is a Rock Creek Christian Academy that is from kindergarten to 12th grade, you know, very small enrollment, just like just like Forestville. And, and so when she got there, the gym had no air ventilation. They couldn't practice on cold days in the winter sometimes, or they had to use another gym. Sometimes they went back to Forestville and used the track to, to run outside, or sometimes they'd, you know, just use the gym inside. Like they had to compensate for this fact, you know, that, that Rock Creek gave her a place to play, but maybe didn't give her the facilities that she needed to play. They still finished as one of the top national teams in the country. Um, they played a national schedule, played in national tournaments, and they'd, <laughs> they'd find drills like seven trees where they'd run up a large hill and have to weave in between the trees to work on like conditioning and, and work on all that. So stuff like that was kind of how she she had to deal with this this Rock Creek gym. But looking back on it, she said that, you know, it only made them stronger because five girls to start, that's that's just one starting lineup. You have to play the entire game. That's kind of how she, she dealt with that. So that was obstacle two. And then obstacle three is obviously DME prep and and eventually they formed empowerment. And so finally, after all of these obstacles, she's finally playing for the Syracuse Orange. How has this season been for Washington? She started out playing a fair amount off the bench. In the season opener against Ohio, she, she hit this incredible fading buzzer beater at halftime. And she was kind of the top guard off the bench when Tisha Hyman, another freshman guard, was dealing with a, a knee injury. But after that, when, once Hyman returned, her minutes have, have dropped significantly. She hasn't played double-digit minutes since a game against Miami in January, and she's only averaging three points per game, which isn't a whole lot. And there's a sentence I put in there that at this point in her career, like Syracuse's stability is going to provide more for Talia than, than she's going to give to Syracuse. And eventually when she gets to be a junior, a senior, and she can step into a, a top two, a top three guard role, that's when she'll be able to provide a you know double-digit point total a game consistent minutes off the bench or even in the starting lineup. But for now, as James, her father, was driving down to a Syracuse tournament in uh, Orlando and I talked with him, and the final question I asked was, like, is this stability a good thing? Like, have you guys talked about it? What does this stability mean to you guys? And he, he started laughing. His son was in the car. He goes, Sonny, have you ever seen her more happy? 
And his son goes, no, I haven't. And that's that's kind of what Syracuse has been for her. It's been this happy place where she can come in as a freshman, be a part of a culture of a good team, and not provide so much statistically, but just her presence has meant a lot. Andrew Crane is an assistant sports editor for The Daily Orange. You can catch his article, A Rocky Path, SU is Talia Washington's first stable program in years, on The Daily Orange website. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. here at Syracuse University. She's a senior who is studying music. She cares a lot about her music, she cares about her friends, and she also cares about graduating and potentially pursuing masters. She's also a student who struggles with food insecurity, and that's something that has been a fact of her life that she told me about. I'm Marnie Munoz. So what is changing with SNAP benefits? Well, SNAP is a program to aid people with food insecurity, and the SNAP benefits are changing because they're going to change how the standards for calculating a person's benefits are based on their heating and utility costs. And so that's going to predominantly affect northern states, such as New York, because we obviously have a lot of heating bills in winters like ours. They're also going to change to make it harder for people to access waivers if they are unemployed, able-bodied adults without dependents. And that is a large chunk of the SNAP population as well. What will this change of the SNAP benefits do for kids at a young age, specifically in the Syracuse area? About 15% of Onondaga County residents and more than 30% of Syracuse residents currently participate in SNAP. For Syracuse City School District, the number is about 84% of children who are eligible for free or reduced lunches. So a lot of those children belong to families that are SNAP eligible, and if their benefits are reduced, it would drastically change what life looks like for them on a daily basis. I spoke with the director of the SESD Food Services, and she said that a lot of those students, like, they go hungry over the weekends because they can't eat over the weekends. She has programs installed to be able to somehow support that, to support them, but it's still a challenge that they face every day. And so she doesn't believe that SNAP benefits changing is going to particularly harm Syracuse in such a way that students aren't going to be able to eat anymore, but she is concerned for like the future of SNAP and for the future of those families who, who depend on it. So the SCSD is the Syracuse City School District, and they were saying in the article that they're working to kind of bolster these existing programs to help hunger action and just overall help the stories of poverty and food insecurity. Can you elaborate a little on that? Yeah, so SESD has a couple programs in place already to help kids who are facing food insecurity or they belong to families that do. So things like their free or reduced lunch program, which is available through the community eligibility provision that allows schools with more than 60% of students in need to access those lunches. They have a program called Blessings in a Backpack, which over the weekend, it can provide students with a little kit of food that they can eat over the weekend so that they don't go hungry. And SESD is also working to partner with local food banks and food drives. And I know that it's really important to them, which is what Rachel Murphy said to me. So in the article, you say another issue impacting food insecurity is physical access. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Physical access is really just one part of the problem. A lot of it has to do with like these intersectional issues that affect the communities that have food insecurity or communities that are predominantly facing food insecurity. Physical access refers to people who may be too far away to access a local grocery store with healthy foods. Because it's one thing to be able to access like a gas station with packaged foods and processed foods but it's another to be able to access healthy produce that is nutritionally beneficial and will also help you sustain a healthy lifestyle. So it's really difficult for some people who live in neighborhoods 
where they're far away from a grocery store or to get there you have to ride the bus and spend on that or like walking takes a long time and for people who are working full-time jobs or just struggling to put food on the table that can be a lot so physical access is one part of the problem alongside income and transportation but experts that I spoke to emphasize the point that it's important to not focus only on physical access because that's just such a narrow scope of a larger problem that affects the community. Does Syracuse University have anything available to students such as food banks or pantries on the campus? Syracuse University has two food banks that are currently operating seven days a week. The hours vary during the weekdays versus the weekends, but we have one here on North Campus called the Hendricks Chapel Food Pantry which is on the second floor of Hendricks Chapel, and it's available for students to come in and, and take what they need. We also have one on South Campus that just recently opened this fall. And will the change in SNAP eligibility impact both urban and rural areas, or will it just impact urban? Kind of walk me through what this is specifically going to impact. Food insecurity actually impacts rural and urban communities together because it's a connected issue. Food systems, which are the systems of production where food goes from from the point of being on a farm to being on a table to being in between that at a grocery store, that's a system that involves both urban and rural communities, especially the people who work there and purchase the products or the people who produce them. So the changing SNAP benefits are going to affect both of those communities because both of those communities depend on food. Food is a fact of life. Food is like a need for survival. But the food industry is also a big part of both of these communities. So for people who especially depend on it to make their livelihood, that's going to be important. So you talked to Stacy Bautista, who's a spokesperson for the Eastern Farm Workers Association. What did she say is the best way to prepare for this huge change in April? So Stacey Bautista was telling me that she is really concerned about the fact that there's not much that Eastern Farm Workers Association and other low-income communities in Syracuse can do other than to organize, because that's what they've done for previous years when other eligibility shifts have happened. She was concerned about the, the shifting budget for STAMP over the years, and she was saying that it's really important that what they can do best to prepare as a community is to be standing in solidarity with each other and also just to prepare as best as they can. And moving forward, what's the hope of all of this? So experts are working to address the situation in Syracuse. I spoke with Professor Weissman of Falk College, and he mentioned that he's working on a research project in coordination with another expert in the field, and they're going to be working on a comprehensive research report for the Onondaga County to be able to provide some more insight into how this issue of food insecurity and other issues of just public health in general affect Syracuse at large and what they can do about it. He mentioned that he'd be interested in expanding regional food connections in Onondaga County so that institutions like SU can continue to help local untapped markets. So what Syracuse University has done with like their food services and being able to use local sourced products, that's really important. But for the people who are directly impacted, their only hope right now is just to continue preparing, to continue organizing and to continue making use of the benefits that are available, but there's certainly not enough of them in Syracuse, but they're, they're doing their best. So can you tell me about physical access and just through education and school lunches? How has this specifically affected Madsen? So Madsen mentioned that she grew up in the Title I school system where she had a lot of her classmates eligible for free reduced lunch. She was on the cusp of meeting that service, but her parents always made sure that she never really fully needed that support during grade school. She volunteered at local food banks when she was younger. It's been a fact of life for her community. But now coming to Syracuse as a transfer student, 
she's had to face food insecurity in addition to or as a byproduct of student debt, working two jobs, not having enough time to manage her employment and her degree and her social life is a struggle for her. And it's one that she hopes won't continue for the rest of her life, but somehow she feels it might be. Madsen is one of many millions of people going through this across the country. How is this new change going to affect a total of 14.3 million people? Well, for some people, it might reduce their SNAP benefits. For some people, their SNAP benefits might be gone entirely. Those estimates vary across the country, but projections have shown that it's a large number of people who are going to be affected. That's a fact. It's going to be difficult for them to to readjust because like a lot of this problem, Professor Weissman said, stems from the idea, the stigmatization of poverty in the United States and this idea that poverty is self-induced or that poverty can be worked out of when in fact poverty is a systemic issue that affects people on multiple levels. So disavowing that stereotype is important, he said, because it helps people move forward One of the justifications for the Snapshots was that unemployment rates across the country are at an all-time low. And while that is true, local activists that I spoke to with the Eastern Farm Workers Association and with the Workers' Center of Central New York, the people that I spoke to said, yes, unemployment rates are low, but the issue is that those jobs aren't sustainable for people. Low-income workers face harsh working conditions, so changing SNAP benefits is only one part of the problem. It's really important to look at this from a broader perspective and recognize that changing SNAP benefits isn't just going to change how much food people get, or what they get to eat, or when they get to eat it. It's also going to change their entire lives. Marnie Munoz is an assistant copy editor for The Daily Orange. You can catch her article, Food Stamp Cut to Exclude Some New York Residents, on The Daily Orange website. Thank you so much, Marnie. Special thank you to our reporters, Andrew and Marnie. Thanks to our executive producer, Elizabeth Kama, and to our producers, Luca Sirio, Calvin Dudley, and JJ Tanaka. And as always, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and go ahead and tell your friends to do the same. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday.